This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to the Skeptical Skeptics Podcast. I'm RJ Metzger. And I'm Rachel Metzger. And we're on episode 50, which is finally a little bit late. That's fine. We explained that we'd be late sometimes. Um, we just went, uh, me and my son went camping for a week that, yeah, I don't even want to talk about how that ended up. It was fun, but definitely did not go according it's to a plan. a little bit of a disaster. Still fun. Um, but yeah, so thanks for your patience. So right off the cuff, we're just going to tell you it does say part one, and that's because there will be a part two because... Mothman is intense. In depth. There's so much stuff. So I knew passively about mothman i did not realize that it was this much info like actual like concrete evidence i have to say i i watched the mothman movie when i was like seven that is the most info i ever had on mothman so i had no idea that this was anywhere near what it is right so um anyway in the news Hmm, i wonder what we would talk about it's going to be coronavirus. I mean, obviously. what else is there even There's happening? Nothing else going on. Um, I still have to work. If you do too, then you because know. how dare Amazon shut down? Well, hey, all right, let's not turn this into a thing. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, yeah. So if you got to work too, more power to us. I'm really interested in the wash like, your hands to see. Yeah, seriously, people wash your hands. Like I am sick, but not with coronavirus. I, I, mm. I think. Better not be. If any of us, if either of us is getting quarantined away from our kids for two weeks, it's me, not you. I will be quarantined so fast. If I'm <laughs> your mind. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how different states are treating it completely differently. I feel like because like I have a friend in Ohio where like they barely had any cases and they automatically shut down schools until like April 10th. And then I had a friend in California at the same time where they hadn't even shut down schools. I mean, they have now, but at the time they hadn't yet when they obviously had more cases there so it's interesting just to see how everyone's treating it differently yep but i personally think it's necessary just saying yeah sure whatever what's the whole like you've seen the little graph right yeah i mean preventative measures are important yes they are i think they make outbreak a lot less likely whatever i mean let's not turn it into a thing i'm just saying um also interestingly though so i follow Kristen bell which everyone should because she's fantastic and i love her and she posted something that i felt like um tied the coronavirus to the skeptical skeptics it said after seeing how the public panics over coronavirus i can see why the government would <laughs> yeah. never tell us about aliens yeah i saw that too um but yeah and it, it's true i mean i really do think that that's i mean if they do have proof of it it makes total I mean, sense. They, I mean, if they told us about aliens, the amount of toilet paper that would, would leave the, that would leave the shelves is insane. No, we we would never catch up. That would toilet be paper and pasta would just that though that whole entire company would just be gone. We'd all be using bidets. Right. Okay. So that's the in the news coronavirus. Let us know if any of you are sick. Oh yeah, I'd like to hear like personal experience. Yeah, with if it. anybody has come across it, definitely like let us know. Uh, know that we're there with you, and then if you haven't, then let us know your thoughts on uh, being hunkered down or just continuing normal life because most of us have to. So anyway, here's the way we're going to approach this, uh, and it may be a little bit jumbled, and the reason why is because there's so much to talk about. It's going to be tough. So what I think we're going to do is first talk about. Just the Mothman story, like the quintessential Mothman story. Okay, and then just like we always do, where we just share exactly what was reported and then talk about it a little bit. 
And then what we'll do is if we can at the end of this episode, we'll kind of get into some theories about Mothman. And then the whole second episode will essentially just be all the things that are like entailed with Mothman. Like, so there's so many things like attributed to Mothman. It's like an umbrella term at this point. So we're just going to talk about those as well. We may be able to get it done in an episode. We may go through the story into, I don't know. That's why I just said, let's leave it open to two episodes. That way we just don't feel rushed. Right. And uh, we'll just see how it goes. Also, here's another thing I want to say. Like, we had to go through and pick and choose stuff. Like, we can't, like, I mean, I think there's like hundreds of stories about Mothman or oh, yeah, things yeah. accredited to Mothman. So we had to go through and pick which were our favorites or which were like the most compelling. Yeah. And I think um, we're going to read, we're going to read some of them word for word. Um, yes. Yeah. And just because, like, because it's someone's personal experience, I'd rather read it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's another reason why we're leaving it to two episodes is just because we'd rather do that than bullet point everything because there's so much. But at the so same much. time, we still, even with two episodes, we still had to. Leave some alone. So if you don't hear a story that you really loved about Mothman, first off, tell us about it because that's awesome. But also we promise we weren't looking in. It's not that we weren't looking into it. It's that we had to pick and choose. Yeah. Certain so ones. pretty much this whole thing came from or was driven by the Mothman.fandom. Um, they have a wiki that is incredibly in-depth, incredibly detailed. It includes photographs of newspaper articles that we're going to read. Um, led me to the transcript that we're going to play for you. Um, or the interview, which we read the transcript and then also have audio of. Um, incredibly well done. have no idea why somebody would do this, but excellent job. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. Whoever did. So um, that's pretty much going to be my attribution is to them. Uh, it, unless I say otherwise, it came from from them. So so thank them. Uh, we'll also be if we read it word for word, it's because they're quoting something word for word. And, and that's pretty much the way that's going to go. Anyway. Um, all right. So we just changed our minds live for everybody. Um, <laughs> we are. Oh, oh, well, in the news. Um. What is I it? was supposed to go to Baltimore and I uh, am not going anymore. Oh, everyone already knew that. Why are you getting me so excited? Did that just show up right now? Yeah. Oh, well, you already knew that. The travel ban is on. Anyway. Um, yeah. So we just decided live that we are actually going to do the uh, we're going to follow the timeline and it we're just going to see what happens. If we just do yeah. it chronologically. And then if we don't get through all of it, then we'll, we'll just, just continue, continue the story rather than two. like cutting up stuff because it yeah, just doesn't make sense it doesn't okay so timeline wise we have prior to the, now the timeline that i'm going to be referencing from is literally on mothman.fandom right. so check that out i did cut out quite a bit and then i put in uh, just a couple things but um it's going to be on there uh again so turning if you click onto it like turning that massive thing into an audio form that's the undertaking that we're looking at. So yeah. it's going to be difficult. But if you happen to be sitting around and can pull it up and follow along that way, that might really it help. might make it a little more cohesive. Yeah. So anyway, um, here are some things that are tied to the Mothman. And that's the other thing, too. So they tie a lot to the Mothman that has almost nothing directly to do with the Mothman. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of the things is going to be the number 13. Um, so... This like the fear of the number 13 goes all the way back to and maybe even predates, but at least I saw it. It has to do with Christ um, in the sense that um, there were 12 apostles, Jesus being the 13th of the group. And Judas is obvious is, is like named as the 13th a lot of the time. Mm. But depending on the sect of Christianity, um, you can have where 13 is good because Jesus is seen He's, as the yeah, 13th right. or it's bad because Judas was the last one to show up to the last supper. Um, and actually the fear of 13 per, was so pervasive that, um, people refused 
for a long time to to have dinner with the number 13 um, because of the Last Supper. So, Fun fact, my birthday is the 13th. Yep. Um, so that came in. There are numerous things that have to do with the number 13 and Mothman. Um, for instance, there is uh, now and, and I think these are all stretches, but again, we have to mention it. So one is the original Mothman report started in November 1966 and ended in December 1967 with the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which we'll talk about. That's like one of the main things about the Mothman. Um, but Isn't that the movie? That collapse of the bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, babe, quit referencing the movie. I don't know the movie. Oh well, that's all I, I don't remember. Know how many times that's I got to tell you? All I remember you. from it. Yeah, but I figured in this you would have read about it. No, I mean I it, I saw it once and it was a crap movie. So I just hey, don't. I liked it. Six oh, it's year Richard old, Gear, by the way. Six year old Rachel thought it was great. For some reason, in my mind, it was either Kevin Costner or oh, mine too. Uh, Michael Keaton, Why but it I was th- Richard Gere. I thought it was Michael Keaton. Are you sure? No, it's Richard Gere. <laughs> why are we feels, talking about this stupid movie? That movie feels very Michael Keaton-y. I think that's why. It does why. feel Michael Keaton-y. Anyway, I love Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so... Anyway, so, already. Starting season two with it. It's just your thing. November 1966, December 1967, 13-month period. That's the point there. Um, oh, got it. But the Silver Bridge collapsed because of the uh, 13th steel pin bar. Uh, or steel pin eye bar uh, failed. So that's interesting to me. Um, we have another. Uh, the name Point Pleasant has 13 letters in it. Again, that one I think is dumb because there's so many other things that there's like, oh, it just doesn't happen after 13 letters. Right. Um, but the TNT area where many of the sightings took place, uh, like the or the most polluted pond in the TNT area where many of the sightings took place was Pond 13. Um the phrase men in black has 13 letters in it and they kept harassing witnesses about the Mothman. Um, the Mothman museum has 13 letters in it. Linda Scarberry, um, her maiden name is Linda McDaniel, which also contains 13 letters. Um, when Linda Scarberry claimed to have seen the Mothman on her roof, she lived on 13th street. Uh, a bunch of witnesses names have 13 letters. Again, I think that's just happenstance. Uh, a bunch of names. I mean, like, seriously, a ton of names. Uh, but again, you can pull this up on the Mothman Wiki for the number 13. I'm just pointing out the ones that I think are most related to the Mothman. So again, this one, and this is one where it's like you're clearly stretching because the, the phrase West Virginian has 13 video <laughs> the letters, but like it, they would have gone with West Virginia. Obviously, right, yeah. they just put the N because that's in there. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of stretches, I think, in here. Um, they even go to number 26 because it's a uh, 13 times two. So, that, for instance, there are 26 sightings um, in John Keel's uh, book about the Mothman. Um, there's some other stuff. So anyway, the number 13. That's a big one that sticks around a lot. Um, something prior to the 1800s, just regionally that's specific. Um, and it kind of gets into the whole, is the Mothman an angel or devil thing? Is the uh, West Virginian tale of the devil's tea tables. So um, West Virginia has a bunch of rock formations uh, in, in its, you know, state. Uh, one of them being like little plateau tables, right? So the old 
like it started from like the old West prior to 1800, where um, <clears throat> they say, if you see a devil's tea table, go ahead and check it out. But if a mist comes, it's shrouding the devil. So you better get out of there. And there was like an old time story of uh, somebody wandering to a devil's tea table, finding the actual devil himself and the devil's uh, crumbled his soul into his coffee, like sugar um, and stuff like that. So the devil's tea tables again, barely related to Mothman, but people are, you know, putting them together. And then one that I actually find, kind of compelling is uh another one that like again prior to the 1800s um like well prior would be the uh, thunderbird legend right which i think everybody's heard of um the thunderbird is an ancient american ancient american native american uh um not deity um because they have you know animism um but uh, uh, uh i guess a cryptid you could call it but essentially it's a giant bird whose wings flap so like loudly it sounds like thunder yeah and they have lightning coming from their eyes which again coming from the mothman that those red eyes mm-hmm. uh could be seen as that so but the thunderbird is one that people it's one of the ones that is wrapped into mothman potentially um and again there are others so then in the 1800s um you have the uh, missing Thunderbird photo, uh, which is in 1890. So it's kind of actually a weird meld between the Mandela effect and Mothman because a lot of people remember like a uh, uh, a photo being circulated from an old 1890 newspaper mm-hmm. of a Thunderbird having been shot and killed and like pinned up to um, the side of like a barn or a shed. And there are like six men in front of this bird and it's showing that it's about 30 feet and 36 feet long. Um, some people remember the men as having their arms out fingertip to fingertip and other people remember them just kind of standing around. Um, so the reason why this is, uh, interesting is because it is like a Mandela effect type of thing in the sense that it's such a compelling image mentally that it can implant a false memory. Yeah, like, right. do you think you've seen that picture? No, you don't. Okay. well, when I read it, I did feel like I'd seen that picture somewhere. And I think it's because I've probably looked into the missing like uh, uh, the missing Thunderbird photo Mm -hmm. before. But at the same time, it's just one of those things where like it's almost an absolute certainty because it just sounds so detailed. And then also like, you know, I mean, like with Western culture, you can kind of just picture like the old farmhand type of like uh, garb and and dress. Um, And like they're just standing around for an old timey photo or whatever. And in fact, one of the like so. In the article from this wiki, which you can look up, um, they look into some of the like pictures that have come forth and what their origins were. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of them are modern Photoshop and modern, you know, people taking the picture with props and stuff like that. But like one of them was an old timey like doctored photo from like the early 1900s where it was actually elements taken from um, this like outlaws grave after they had shot and killed him in tombstone. Uh Um, and like these guys are standing around with the outlaw dead, but then they slice, they spliced in a pterodactyl, um, at at the foot of their, like at their feet. Yeah. And they think that this may be one of the origins of this false memory. Um, but anyway, I mean, it's still pretty widely reported. They actually even found an article, um, about uh, this quote unquote giant bird being taken down by uh, hunters um, from like a long time ago. The only thing is like the the picture was missing. So um, so there are reports of these giant birds being taken down. It's the picture that's kind of the Mandela effect. So that's all the way back in 1890 um, in the mid 
uh, 1850s, you have the Crimean Crow. So in the mid-1850s, during a six-day battle of the Crimean War, on March 14th, a band of five Russian soldiers crept towards the center of the battlefield, planning an ambush just after midnight. According to the sole survivor of the group, the sky suddenly blackened and a headless crow-like creature appeared above the men. The men lost their bearings and fled back to their own camp, where the Russians, mistaking them for Turks, opened fire on them. Only one man survived. According to other sources, the men actually were Turks and the animal was actually a swarm of bats. Yep. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? But it's another thing that's been attributed to the Mothman. Also, what happens when you get stories from the 1800s? Yeah. So another thing to keep in mind is um, the West Virginia region is kind of known for a lot of its paranormal stuff. So one thing is like the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is a huge, like Taps has been there, Ghost Adventures has been there, everybody's been there. Um, They're there. Um, The West Virginia State Penitentiary is there, incredibly haunted. The Low Hotel. Then there's the Flatwoods Monster, which we'll talk about. And then the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins are Mm -hmm. very nearby which we did a uh, episode on so feel free to listen to that um but anyway i mentioned that to to mention that uh in 1864 the trans allegheny lunatic asylum opened um so anyway then you also have the west virginia state penitentiary opening in 1876 um and then one of the last bits in the 1800s so not prior to 1800 anymore but in the 1800s is uh flying machines so there was an outbreak of like sight of um humanoid flying things that people attributed to flying machines um you had a new york sighting in september 18th 1877 um a kentucky sighting in july 29th 1880 another new york sighting in 1880 Another uh, West Virginia sighting in 1895 and a uh, Illinois sighting in 1897. These were all documented and put in like the newspapers of the time. But the reason why this is, again, interesting is one, the flying machine motif kind of comes back up again because it really just it's it's how you paint what you saw. I mean, if you see a humanoid flying creature with giant wings, if you have it in mind that it's a technology you would say it was a flying machine. If you right. have it in mind that it was natural, you might say it was an owl man, bat man. I'm or also going to go man. ahead and say that back when those things were starting, there was probably lots of people freaking out about. Yeah. Well, I mean, like anybody could just be over my house. Well, no, and yeah. I, like there's probably a lot of people who lived out in the middle of nowhere who had no idea they were even creating these. And then just looks up in the sky and is like, I'm sorry. Well, this was prior to that? first flight, though. So these are the oh, 1800s. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, but I just mean in general around that time. Yeah, that like hot air balloons, yeah, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. So again, I I just think you may have been seeing the same thing and then just attributing it to something different, yeah. right? Um, and then we go into the early 1900s. So you have, and I'm going to butcher this, Leteyushi Chelovic. Um, in July 11th, 1908. So Russia has a long uh, tradition of what are called that word I just butchered, um, which are flying human beings with one of the most famous sightings happening on July 11th, 1908. When explorer VK, VK, why did I say that? VK Arsenev, um, Arsenev actually, uh, saw one near the mouth of the river uh, Gobili. Um, so we may go into that one a little bit deeper but it they're really i looked and there's just not a whole lot to it he essentially saw a flying human being near the mouth of the river <laughs> um but anyway so then you also have the headless angel so again the headless thing there was a headless crow right yeah. in the crimean crow mm-hmm. um mothman is a lot of times depicted as humanoid but sometimes depicted as more of like a stout like where almost like it looks headless, but his eyes are glowing like from where chest. chest are. Yep. Yeah. Same with Owlman. So that's that, that one comes up a lot. Um, and there was a uh, 
headless angel sighting by Lucia Abobora and three other children in Portugal uh, in the summer of 1915. Um, and then again, we're following a timeline. So the TNT area, which is um, like where a lot of sightings took place, opened in 1942. And then you have flying saucers becoming a social phenomenon in 1947. And then the flying machines come back. So you get a rash of sightings of flying machines again. Um, This is 60 years later. So you have a Washington sighting in 1948, another Washington sighting in 1948, and then an Oregon sighting in 1948, which again, people have attributed to the Mothman. And then in 1952, you have the Flatwoods Monster, um, which uh, the reports begin in West Virginia um, in 1952. Like I said, it's also known as the Braxton County Monster or Braxy. and it's been reported by several people uh, around there since uh, September 12th. I like that they gave him a nickname. Yeah. Um, a little Braxy. Yeah. So you get uh, a 1952, the September 12th uh, sighting, and then you have multiple like articles coming from from this. Right. So you have and multiple residents uh, viewing the same thing on the same night. Um, and the Flatwoods monster is actually really interesting. And in fact, I want to leave another episode devoted to it because it's, it's different, but oh, wow, okay. um, it actually doesn't look like the Mothman. That's why I'm only mentioning it. Just like I mentioned the uh, trans Allegheny uh, lunatic asylum in the mm-hmm. West Virginia state penitentiary. It's just to point out that West Virginia apparently is like uh, a center of what people call high strangeness. Um, yeah. Specifically the hell your folks say it a ton or whatever, but they're annoying <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so the but the Flatwood Monster, I don't think would be misidentification of what Mothman is. It was more of like a uh, um, people call it like a, a like, I mean, a machine, um, but it kind of looks like a man. There's no good way to put this. Um, do you all know? Uh, <laughs> not like you could answer, but the <laughs> antibiotic off of Osmosis Jones. You remember him? I mean, there were so many things that I don't remember what he looks like. He's just like the red big tank thing, like clearly mechanical. He looks like there's there's um, there's got to be a better. I think so. Well, don't um, but don't talk about him too much. If we want to do another episode on yeah, him, we'll do another him episode. But he doesn't look a lot like Mothman is what I'm getting at. Um, and then you have the term UFO coined by 1953. Again, UFOs are going to come up. Um, so then you have another flying machine uh, sighting in 1953. And then that's when the men in black uh, enter UFO lore um, and they start like, you know, bothering people. So, again, this says 1953 and it's after um, the UFO flap. Uh, that started in 1952, which we did an episode on. So if you guys go yep. back to the uh, White House um, UFO incident um, that we did, I think in August, um, listen to that. So that kind of like started the whole UFO thing um, and elements of that kind of come up again. Then in the 1960s, you have the Apple Devils. Um, they arrive again. I don't think that they're really related to the Mothman, but uh, you know, some people have, have thought that they are again with the whole thing being high strangeness. Um, but they show up in the 1960s and then you have, um, the first sighting of Mothman, although it wasn't the first report of Mothman. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you have a woman in Point Pleasant in 1961. I think I have this one. Okay, go for it. 
Okay, so um, this was in 1961. This woman uh, said she was in West Virginia driving on Route 2 along the Ohio River on um, the West Virginia side with her elderly father as they passed through a sector of the edge of a park known as the Chief Cornstalk Hunting Grounds. Which, hold on, stop right there. So Chief Cornstalk um, supposedly uh, was lured into a base with his son. Um, way back in the uh, late 1700s mm-hmm. and then was uh, killed in the fort. And they say that he put a curse out on the land. Um, and that also contributes to the high strangeness. Anyway, okay. continue. Um, a tall man like figure suddenly appeared on the road in front of them. I slowed, she said, years later. And as we go closer, we could see that it was much larger than a man, a big gray figure. It stood in the middle of the road. Then a pair of wings unfolded from its back and they practically... Um, filled the entire road. It almost looked like a small airplane. Then it took off straight up, disappearing out of sight in seconds. We were both terrified. I stepped on the gas and raced out of there. We talked it over and decided not to tell any about it, anybody about it. Who would believe us anyways? Yep. So this is five full years prior to the Mothman like uh, thing, yep. like the, the, the whole thing blowing up. And so um, that's very interesting that that you know, was in such detail it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it makes you also wonder just how many people also were being quiet about it, right? Which yeah. I think would be a well, natural but also, thing. Yeah, like, I can't say I blame her. Right. I would believe you anyways. And then you also have a very early uh, documented, uh, and again, not reported, uh, um, what's it called? Sighting of Mothman, which is the uh, red-eyed monster, which now people have, again, attributed to Mothman, Mm -hmm. which happened in West Virginia in 1961 to Shirley Hensley. Oh, Um, I have that one, too. Okay, yeah, so talk about it. Okay, um, so, yeah, so Shirley Henley reported that between the years of 1961 and 64, her and her family would often hear very strange noises and see red glowing eyes. To her, this was normal and she didn't think much of it. So from there, I just decided to quote her because I feel like she said it better than I could. Um, So, quote, I didn't realize that other people did not live the way that we did. We had an outhouse and burnt wood and coal for heat and basically lived in a shack. We existed from day to day. I am the oldest of nine children, and when something like this happens, you just think that it's just another part of your life. We felt fortunate if a lot of time a lot of time would pass before we heard this thing again. We not only could hear it, but it went around the house and it would bump up against the side of the house. Oh, it's terrifying. We had plastic covering the windows instead of real glass windows. There was one very big window, and whatever this thing was could have just come right through it if it had wanted to. You could hear the grunting noises as it bumped up against the house and the leaves crackling as it walked. We could also hear a gargling type of sound and then a very loud scream would come out and it was a blood curdling scream like nothing I had ever heard before. We all took turns getting the water from the well and we had a rule that we had to get the water in before dark. That is when this thing always came around. We never saw it in the daylight so everyone knew that they had to bring in the water before dark. If you didn't do it then, it didn't get done. It would come around one or two nights for about three weeks and then it would go away. This went on for about three years. At first, my parents had other things on their mind other than this stuff they called foolishness. The first time I ever heard it was near an old flatbed truck in the road in front of our house. I had a boyfriend who would come visit me at that time and we would sit in the cab of the truck and talk. We heard something bump up against the truck from underneath and loud scream. We jumped out of the truck and ran into the house. A few days later, my mother and I, along with a couple of my brothers and sisters, went to the well to get some water. Behind the well were some large bushes and trees. When she dropped the bucket in the well, we heard that familiar scream coming from the area where the bushes were. She grabbed us and told us all to run to the house. That was the first time my mother heard it. 
I remember it was in the fall because I was dating my husband at the time and my father told me I had to be home by dark. So I would always be home by about 6 p.m. I had just walked up our driveway and opened the front door and my mother ran into the room. She was frantic and told me to get in the house because they had heard that thing again. She said that my family had gone out to get my other two sisters who were outside playing. Dad said he had heard it scream and after pushing my two sisters into the house, he hunkered down by the door. Just out from our front, our front porch was our neighbor's coal pile. He said he could hear it scrambling in the coal pile. So he stuck his arm in our door and told our neighbor Delmer to hand him a gun. Delmer's son handed our dad a 22 rifle. Dad always hated the fact that it was only a 22 and that it couldn't do much damage. If in fact, he did get a good shot at it. He pulled the gun up to shoot. And as he watched, he could see two large red eyes coming up over the coal. He shot at it and let and it let out a loud scream and started running towards the hill. When asked how her father described the red eyes, Shirley said, Shirley replied, he said they looked like a red bicycle reflectors. Dad was a little angry because he had told my sister Mary to stay in the house, but she had witnessed the whole thing while standing behind him. She said it was a big, tall, black, shiny thing with big red eyes. Dad described it as at least seven feet tall and that it had very long arms that went down past its knees and that when it ran up the hillside, the arms stayed down in its side. He said it ran in an awkward manner. People tried to tell him that we were hearing and seeing what we were hearing and seeing was a panther. But dad always said that a panther either screams like a woman or sounds like a baby crying. He said it was neither of those. He also dismissed it as being a screech owl of any sort. My two sisters would look for footprints or tracks, and one day they found a big print in the dirt. Dad came out and looked at it and said he had never seen any tracks that resembled that type of footprint before. We had two little hound dogs named Roscoe and Sluggo, which are like the cutest names for dogs ever. And they stayed outside because we didn't keep dogs in the house. When we would hear this thing scream, the dogs would come to the door, whimper and terror stricken, whimpering and terror stricken. When we would open the door, the hair on their backs would be literally standing straight up in the air. They would get under the covers on the bed and just sit there and shake. Poor babies. I was always amazed at the fact that whatever this thing was never hurt anyone. I think that it was as afraid of us. We were afraid of it. Um, anytime Shirley or anyone else in her family tried to tell someone about the creature, they would obviously laugh and call them crazy. Um, after hearing of the stories of Mothman in 1996, she began to wonder if that creature, the creature she saw, had any connection to him. Yeah, so that's a compelling story in and of itself. And I think that the thing about it is, like, as I was hearing it and, and reading it, I thought of a mountain lion as well or a panther. Right. Um, because they do make that blood curdling, just got awful scream. But apparently the father is like familiar with that scream. Yeah. Um, and again, it would not at all explain shiny seven foot tall with long arms. That's not what a panther looks no, like. It's no, not no. what a mountain lion looks like. So that one is very interesting also to me. Also to have that many people in your family and that many people all yeah, cooperating that yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, Um, Yeah, so very interesting to me. And then in uh, 1965, you also have the Grafton monster, which is like a uh, troll, essentially. Um, again, something I'm reserving for if I need a cryptid at some point to do. <laughs> um, we could have left the red eye monster, but I think that one's too related to Mothman that yeah, we needed to share so that one. Um, and then in 1965, um, you have a woman living on the Ohio river. Do you have that one as well? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Some, uh, some miles from Clendenin, West Virginia. Uh, she was amused when her seven year old son ran into the house one day and excitedly told her that he had seen an mm. angel or a man with wings. Uh, she assumed it was just his imagination and thought more, no, more of it until 1966 when the Mothman sightings started being reported in Point Pleasant. She thought maybe it was related. Then you have a wave of UFO reports in Michigan in March of 1966. Again, might do an episode on that one. Um, 
And then in April 16th, 1966, you have a pretty famous case, which I can't actually weirdly remember if we talked about this or not, because I know it was on one of my potential topics lists. Uh, But you had two police officers claim that they chased a UFO. Do you have that one? No, but I feel like you talked about this. I felt like I did, too. Remember you did that whole police episode? Yeah, I might have talked about it. I think you did. It's a quick story. So in on April 16, 1966, several police officers in Portage County, Ohio, pursued an unidentified flying object for half an hour before watching it disappear into the night sky. The media brought the story to the public's attention and popular interest compelled the Air Force to conduct an investigation. Now, the Air Force concluded that the officers had misidentified ordinary occurrences, um, which opened up the witnesses to a torrent of ridicule. Some of the witnesses already emotionally disturbed by what they'd seen were so harshly scrutinized that they quit the force to escape the public eye. Um, But this happened in 1966, uh, right before the Mothman reports. So then we get into the actual Mothman reports. So all that was just building up to this. And then we have some several things happening after this as well. So like I said, going to be a long episode or two. So starting in roughly uh, late 1966, people in the state of West Virginia and other surrounding areas reported seeing flying winged humanoid creatures, as we talked about with red eyes, which newspapers eventually dubbed the Mothman. Most of of the reports came from the town of Point Pleasant. The big story that caught the media attention and started the legend was the Scarberry and Mallette sighting that took place on on November 15th, 1966, Mm, which we'll talk about. Anger cold happened before that. Should I tell that story first? Yeah, we will. Uh, It it comes up. I have it still in timeline. Okay. So most of the other previous sightings were reported after this event. That's the critical part. So the Scarsbury, again, like I said, is not the first report we've already talked about couples the Uh, most important one it's just the one that like got reported first yeah Yeah. the influx of reports was ended uh once the collapse of the silver bridge occurred on december 15th of 1967 it was a 13 month period of what people call high strangeness um so again you get the michigan ufo wave in march of 1966 um which Controversy arose from that one because they repeated the whole swamp gas uh, explanation Uh thing, which we talked about in the UFO one, um, which just doesn't make sense. Um, And then the uh, public outcry was fairly large at the time to start using scientific study of unidentified flying objects because the fear was was increasing. Um, And then you have a few things prior to um, the main events of the Mothman story. One was a report of a giant butterfly in the summer of 1966. Mm -mm. Okay. Um, In the summer of 1966, a woman in the Ohio Valley, uh, the wife of a doctor, was in her backyard when a six foot long thing soared past her very rapidly. She said it resembled a giant butterfly and she dared to mention the incident only to a few people. Um, Understandably. Yeah. Um, but again, a moth looks a lot like a what? Freaking butterfly, right? Right. So anyway, there's that. And then you have Lawrence Gray's Mothman sighting in the fall of 1966. Again, prior to the most famous sighting. Um, do you have that one? Mm-mm. Okay. So one evening at around 930, the couple, um, Lawrence Gray and, and his uh, uh, significant other were returning home from church. He says, quote, we walked upon the steps and I immediately sensed that someone had been or was in the house. I just had that feeling. Um Lawrence was actually telling this to a local author, Jeff Wamsley, um, in an interview. He says, quote, I didn't mention this to my wife because I figured she would think I was joking. So I opened the front door and we went into the house and that feeling became much stronger to me than uh, that something was just not right. I remember glancing across the living room and I didn't see anything out of place. So I then walked in towards the bathroom. When you walked through uh, the bathroom, 
uh, or walk through the hall. The bathroom was straight ahead and there was a bedroom on each side of the bathroom. Uh, my next response was to go into the bedroom on the side of Jackson Avenue. I looked in the closet and under the bed and didn't see anything, but I felt that feeling. I didn't let my wife see what I was doing as I checked out the other bedroom. I went into the kitchen and walked towards the back door with a basement door next to the back door. We always kept a little hook style lock on that basement door. So we would know if anyone had been in the basement. I noticed that the, the lock was unhooked and I thought maybe I had just forgotten to lock it. I still had a weird feeling about it. So I went down into the basement to see if there uh, was someone down there. I cautiously opened the basement door and turned on the light. I couldn't really see all around the basement, to be honest. Um, I really didn't want to go down there, but I started uh, down the steps and there was a pipe laying close to the steps. So I picked it up and proceeded on down to the basement. I looked all around, but still did not see anything. I headed back upstairs, but I still had that same feeling that I had whenever I came into the house. It was a dead fear, a sense that somebody was there and I couldn't see them. So the evening went on and finally we went to bed at around 1030 or 11 p.m. Our bedroom faced Jefferson Avenue and the foot of my bed did also. I slept on the window side. I was laying there in bed and all of a sudden at about 3 a.m. I found myself awake and looking out the window. I remember all of this very clearly. A bright streetlight was out in front of the church down the corner and a car pulled up there and stopped and then went on down the street. I remember looking at the car and wondering, why am I awake? I didn't feel anything at the moment. I turned my head across the bed and there this thing stood. It just sort of paralyzed me and I was frozen with, fe with fear. I was taken by what I was seeing and I was really afraid at this point. It was standing there and I tried to yell, but I couldn't make a noise. Sounds like what? Sleep paralysis, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, my wife was lying. Well, well sorry, <clears throat> especially because he was already freaked out mm -hmm. yeah yeah my wife was lying right beside me asleep this thing was standing there and it was at least six feet tall maybe a little taller from where i was laying and it sort of had a dirty lunar color so like gray yeah this thing could see me and i could see it we both knew we were looking at each other to me i am convinced as sure as i am sitting in the chair that it was the devil the thing had two arms or things that looked like wings and it was standing like this demonstrate in he stands up to demonstrate a figure standing with shoulders shrugged and mm -hmm. head tilted i did not see any red eyes of any sort it had a shape it had a head and those deep eyes uh and in those deep eyes and it was pronounced in its own way it wasn't really a human form but it was in the form of a body the head was very much a head with wing formation off to its sides i can see it in my mind just as clear as it was on that night i would estimate this lasted for about 45 seconds or so and it went on for a while um i really don't know i really didn't know what to do but when i started thinking of scripture in my head it was just like a, a salt on slug it just sort of dissipated not real fast but just sort of went into nothing uh Lord Lawrence then woke up his wife and told her what he'd seen. She agreed with him. That it was the devil. Um, he considered the Mothman reports in Point Pleasant to be people seeing the same thing he had. Lawrence told his story to Jeff Wamsley, who published it in his 2005 book, Mothman Behind the Red Eyes. Um, yeah. So, again, I think that's sleep paralysis. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, it's sleep paralysis with a hallucination that comes with it. It's very common. Um, and then it just happened to be linked to Mothman, so he thought it was the same thing. Um, but still, a good story nonetheless. Um, then you have sightings on September 1st of a flying humanoid. So at about 2 p.m. on Thursday, September 1st in 1966, uh, again, like the, the main sighting happened November 15th, same year, uh, Miss James Eichhardt of Scott, Mississippi, was astonished to see a flying man around Pineland Plantation 
She telephoned the Delta Democratic Times uh, in Greenville, Mississippi, which is the newspaper, mm-hmm. and reported, uh, and a reporter armed with cameras was rushed to the scene. He found several people staring at the sky, all claiming that they had seen the object shaped like a man maneuvering overhead. Uh, quote, it got down pretty low and then would go right back up, Ms. Icard told him. Quote, I've never seen anything like this before. Um, so, and then in... On that same day, a flying humanoid was seen at low altitude in the vicinity of the town of Scott, and several adults shot, saw a man-shaped thing in the sky yet again. Then we have another Rachel story. In, the injured cold oh, yeah. thing happened. Okay, so this story isn't exactly like... isn't It's like kind of tied to Mothman, but it's not Mothman. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. They're incredibly closely related all the time in anything you ever read. Yes. Like, people have put them together, but, but again, they don't. I think it's just the whole high strangeness thing, but we have to mention Andrew Gold. It's kind of one of my favorite of these kind of stories. Um, so, Woodrow Durenberger was a salesman for a sewing company. He uh, lived in Mineral Wells, West Virginia. On Wednesday, November 2nd of 1966 at 7.30 p.m. He was driving home from work in uh, Marietta, Ohio. While driving on Route 77 in Parkersburg, West Virginia, he claimed that he saw something looking like a flying metallic cigar-shaped craft. The ship went right past his truck and then stopped in front of him in the middle of the highway blocking the road. Woodrow stopped on the side of the road near the craft. He claimed it was hovering about 12 feet above the ground. A door opened and being and a being exited the ship. And then as soon as he as the being exited, the door closed with a loud dunk behind him. Then the vehicle went straight up about 50 feet in the air. The being went up to Woodrow's truck window. He said the creature looked like an ordinary man, six feet tall, about 35 years of age, olive complexion, dark brown hair, and wearing a glossy metallic dark blue coat. The man spoke to Woodrow telepathically. Um, His mouth did not move, and he had a fixed smile on his face. The man looked in through the truck's window and said without saying something along the lines of, like, roll your window down. I want to talk to you. Um, during that time, the man called himself in- in- Ingrid Cold. In- Ingrid, Ingrid Cold. Cold. Sorry, I thought I spelled that wrong, but I, no, I didn't. Yeah. Ingrid Cold. Sorry. He told Woodrow that he meant him no harm. Um, Woodrow, sa- Woodrow said, quote, I was very frightened. And as far as I can understand, this was all mental. There was not um, were not spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He appeared very courteous and friendly, end quote. Injured Cold and Mr. Dernberger's conversation lasted about 10 minutes. Um, Cold to- told him, quote, we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we bleed, even as you do, end quote. Before returning to his flying craft, he said, um, quote, we will see you again, end quote. Dernberger later reported this event to the police. Uh, soon Woodrow's story gained media attention on November 3rd, 1966. He was interviewed on live TV by the state police, the county police, the Woodrow, the Wood County Airport and representatives from the Dayton, Ohio Air Force Base. Yeah. So that's actually the uh, audio that we have. Um, it is from a YouTube video titled Injured Cold, the Woodrow Derenberger inter- interview and has captions. Um, and essentially it, it's not going to provide any more detail than what Rachel already told you, but I do feel there's value in hearing this man tell this story um, because it's just, it's interesting. He sounds very sincere. sounds very matter of fact about it. Um, but anyway, so we'll play excerpts of that um, interview. And so you'll hear those now. In your own words, would you please relate what happened last night? Well, I was, I am a salesman, and I drive a truck, and last night, uh, shortly after 7 o'clock, I was coming from Marietta, Ohio, coming down Interstate 77, 
And just before I came to the intersection of Route uh, 47, there was a car past me, overtaking me from behind. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. And as the car ahead, or the car behind passed me, this object was following close behind it, and it swerved directly in front of my truck, turning crosswise. And when it turned crosswise, it slowed down. It started slowing not abruptly or too fast, but it gave me plenty of time to step on my brakes and slow down with it. But it forced me to come to a complete stop. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck, and I had done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me, what I was called, and I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened, we wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm, we wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. And he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg, he pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing, and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was a Parkinsburg, it was a city, a town. And he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business. It's where we transacted our business, that the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his, where his home was, that that was called a gathering. And uh, again, he told me not to be frightened, which I was. I was, I was very frightened. And as far as I can understand, this was all mental. There was no spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was he appeared very courteous and friendly. And after I talked with him a while, he told me he would see me. He said, we will see you again, and he left in his vehicle. Now, Mr. Dernberger, for the sake of our television audience here, uh, the the words that you used, cold, cold would be like uh, cold is his name. This is how it sounded to you that his name was cold. Yes. And That's the the word gathering was like uh, we would know together or something like this. Yes, that's what he meant. That was the impression that he gave. And he did not move his lips nor utter any sound whatsoever. He he talked with you in, in telepathy then. That was right, that his lips did not move. He uttered no words at all. But you talked. I mean, you, he did Yes, I talked. He told me, he told me twice that I could either talk or I could think. 
which either would be better or easier for me. This was an instant thing. This wasn't, there was no hesitation on his part nor on your part. You knew immediately what he was That's communicating correct. to you, and he knew immediately what you were communicating to him. That is right. Mm -hmm. uh, what did this object, what color was this object? This object was between a real dark gray and black. I would call it a charcoal color. It glistened in my headlights. My headlights, when it stopped me, my headlights were shining directly on it. it uh, were there lights in it? No, I see no lights of any kind. There was no lights in it. There were windows? If there was windows, I couldn't detect them. I couldn't see them. And when the door, now, uh, you could, you had a very clear view from behind the wheel of your van, uh, uh, the driver's seat of your van. Yes. He came forward toward you. Be did he tell you, did he communicate to you to roll your window down before he got to the side of your truck? What, was he still in your headlights when he communicated? He was, he was still in my headlights, walking in a, in a kind of a diagonal way across my headlights to the right-hand side of my truck when he told me then to roll down, if I would please roll down the window on the right-hand side of my truck. Uh, now, in the beginning, you were driving south on 77. Correct. From Marietta. Yes. Toward uh, Mineral Wells. Yes. A car passed you. It did. Immediately behind this car, of what distance? I would say between 25 and 30 feet. It was very close to the other car. Uh, came this object yes. uh, hovering how far off the ground, would you say? Well, when, it, when I first seen it, uh, I, I, I seen it out of the corner of my eye, and I first thought it was just another car, and then I knew it wasn't a car almost immediately, and I turned and looked at it. And I would say it was approximately 30 to 35 feet long. And it came directly across, past my truck, and immediately turned sideways. It was completely crossed the two-lane highway. It was, it completely blocked me. I went partly <coughs> off of the road onto the berm to try to go around it, but I couldn't get around it. it how about, uh, would you, how was this gentleman, uh, how was this person dressed? Uh, what what well, type of clothing uh, did he wear? He had a top coat on and it was zippered down the front. Uh, his top, uh, the top two buttons, like my coat here, were open, and he, this uh, outfit was a, a shiny material. It was a, a glossy outfit, uh, like it was metallic, I suppose you would call it. And his shirt was a little bit darker than his jacket. And below his coat, he had on trousers of uh, the same kind of a cloth material, and I believe the trousers were just a shade lighter than his coat. Which would have been a uh, navy blue, the coat yes. would have been a dark blue yes. coat. Uh, what, about the, uh, what about the texture of his skin, the color of his skin, uh, his eyes, eyebrows, eyelashes, hairline? Uh, what, what were these, uh, what did he look like? He looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being. He had. Uh, his face looked like he had a, a good tan, a deep sun tan. He was not too dark, but it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back, and it was a dark brown. And he, he seemed to have uh, a good thick head of hair. 
and his eyebrows, his face, uh, his features were n very normal. Uh, I don't believe that he looked any different from any other man that we'd meet on the street. Now, this ship that he stepped out of, when he came, when he left the ship and started toward your truck, toward your van, the ship remained there as he walked toward you? Or? No. Immediately that he stepped out of the truck, or out of his vehicle, the door closed and the vehicle lifted straight up. It went straight, just as straight as you could point upward. And it went up and uh, I did see it. And uh, occasionally as I was talking to this man, I looked up and it was still there. It was approximately, approximately 50 to 75 feet off of the ground and it stayed there all the time this man was talking to me. Now, when he did, uh, when he talked to you, did he uh, turn his head away as I'm turning my head away now, or did he uh, stare right at you, or did, uh, uh, what, what was, he, what was his movement? He watched me when he was talking to me. He looked at me directly in the face, but as uh, there were several cars and several big trucks passed, and uh, as these big trucks would pass, he would turn his head and glance at the trucks. But there was no... Uh, did you look at the object in the air while he was talking with you? Did you glance up at Yes. The... I, in fact, I, I leaned forward and looked kind of out of my windshield, and I could see it. It was still... So then this communication that, you, that he had with you would not necessarily depend upon him looking you in the eye or anything like that, then, evidently? No, no, I, he did not. In fact, when he first got out of the vehicle, when he told me to roll the window down, he, it was impossible for him to see my eyes because I was behind my own headlights, and he could not have done it. How old would you say he was? He looked to be approximately 35, 40 years old. He was a very nice-looking man. He was neat. And, uh, what specifically did he say to you? What did he say? Hi, it's a nice evening. Or what? I mean, what, why did he stop you? What? Did, what was his? When he when he asked me to roll the window down, which I did, I rolled the window down, and he told me he said, uh, "I would like to talk to you." And uh, I just couldn't answer him. I just couldn't speak. And at that that is the first time he told me not to be frightened. He said he wished me no harm, and. Uh, he talked a little bit in this vein. He asked me why. He said, why are you frightened of us? He said, we are the same as you. He said, we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we bleed, even as you do. He said, we are like you. He, and he said, please be not frightened. Did he say where he was from? He did not say where he was from, but when he asked me what Parkinsburg was, and I told him, he said it, uh, at where I, where I stay or where I live, my home, he said, we call this a gathering. Did he say anything about him? Did he volunteer? Uh, did, he, did he have a family? What did, what, did, uh, did he ask you what you did for a living, where you were? No, he, he, he asked me if I, if I worked for a living. He asked me if I, if I had to work to live, and I explained to him what I was. I, he even asked me where I lived, and I told him. And I told him that I was a salesman. And he told me that he was a searcher. A searcher? A searcher. But he didn't tell you what he was searching for? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't offer me no uh, information other than this. But 
uh, two or three times he did tell me, he said, Mr. Dernberger, look at me. He said, do not be frightened, look at me. And I believe if I hadn't have been frightened, I believe that if I had have looked to him, I believe that I could have understood a lot more of uh, what he wanted me to than what I actually did. You but just have this feeling, you mean? But I have that feeling. I, uh, I, w I was very nervous. I was very upset after this happened. And after I got home and after I had calmed down, I can look back now and I see where I should have asked him questions, and I believe I had the impression that he would have answered these questions readily. Do you believe in flying saucers? I have never have believed in flying saucers before. I, I have heard about them a few times. I've even read in the paper about flying objects, but I... Honestly, never did believe in it. Do you believe in them now? I believe in what I seen last night. I believe it was... I don't believe it was a saucer, but I believe it was an alien... some kind of an aircraft, a spacecraft or something. Mr. Dernberger, we have a program on radio called The Joe Pine Show, and Mr. Pine interviews extraordinary people in various... Uh, that are involved in various uh, occupations and, and some non-occupational type of uh, businesses. And have, have you ever heard of Joe Pine? No, I haven't. I don't believe I have. All right. Uh, on one of his recent broadcasts, he talked with a man. He interviewed a man who had not only had somewhat similar, uh, somewhat similar experience to what you had last evening, but uh, this gentleman went one step further, and he had taken, uh, been taken aboard a spaceship, which, by the way, was uh, described quite similarly, similarly to what you described this particular ship. Uh, and this ship, uh, with these people who looked like we do and so forth, took him to Venus and took him to Mars and brought him back home again. What, what would you think of a story like that if somebody told it to you? What would you think of the person telling you that story? Would you believe that now? Would you believe that well, that could be possible? Now, Mr. Uh, Manz, I believe now that that could happen. If someone would have told me yesterday before this happened, I would have frankly thought he was a nut. But I honestly believe now that it could happen. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm surely not going to say it couldn't happen. Uh, now, these men last night, or this man, he made uh, gave me no indication that he wanted me on his ship. He didn't ask me to get out of my truck. As I say, he was very friendly and courteous. And uh, you drink? Do no, you drink? I do not drink. I, uh, other, I mean, you don't drink intoxicating beverages. No, I do not drink any intoxicating beverages at all. I, I don't believe in drinking, and I just don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I saw last night, I know that I saw it. It was no figment of imagination. It was there, and I was there. And now, you, you said that uh, he, he also made the statement that we will see you again. When he was getting ready to leave, he stepped back from the truck about one step, and he said, uh, Mr. Dernberger, we will see you again. He didn't say I. He said we. We'll see you again. And uh, when he got in the truck, or when he got in the vehicle, the door opened as he walked up to the vehicle. 
and he stepped up into it and there was another man or I couldn't describe this man because I could just see his outline but I did see his arm and hand reach outside and take a hold of the door and pull the door closed and when the door closed it made an audible noise like you'd shut the, a door on a big heavy automobile it, what kind of a noise did this object make when it was uh, hovering above the ground six or ten inches and and then uh, upon uh, letting the man off, uh, and you say it went back up in the air 75 or 100 feet. Uh, this is a, an object now that we're talking about that's nine, eight or nine feet high, 36 uh, feet long, yes. and about eight or nine feet across that's in, right. in breadth. Uh, uh, it would... Although it's really not too large an object, it is a, it's larger than what a, an automobile, for example. Yes. Uh, and to lift something like that would take a lot of uh, a lot of force to do this. What kind of a sound did this make? It uh, the the sound when it was hovering over the ground and when it was lifting, I, I couldn't distinguish no difference in the sound. It was a low fluttering noise. It uh, well, if you've ever heard the blades of a helicopter as it was idling, sitting on the ground, that would be the closest way that I can describe the noise it made. But it was not very, very loud. Can you can you make a noise that it sounds well, like? Uh, you? It, sound, it was a fluttering noise. It sounded something like... But, but it's a sound you have never heard before. I had never heard anything like it before in my life. Let's, let's get back to this... Uh, Let's get back to the fellow here now. He was how tall? I would say he was close to six feet tall, and he'd weigh around 180 or 185. I'm six feet tall. He's heavier he's, than I am. He was about your height. But heavier than what Yes, I am. he was Facial. heavier. His face was more full. His how much do you figure that I would weigh? I'd say about 165 to 70. Uh, you, you're right on the button. That's that's right. Uh, there were no lights. This was now. This was dark. This time of night, you were. It was dark. It was completely dark. But I never, at any time, turned my headlights off. And I also had the lights in the truck on. I have a, a cab light, and then I have lights back through my truck. Mm -hmm. And uh, these lights were on. It gave good illumination up close to the truck, but not too far back. But while he was standing and talking to me. I could see him clearly, and at several times there was cars passed and trucks passed, and uh, especially cars that came up from behind me, as they came around this bend, they were throwing their headlights directly on the back end of my truck and was throwing a good light on him. But no one slowed down or No one slowed down. Like as but they would have easily been able to see him. Yes, they could have Do you suppose maybe somebody in our audience might have passed you last evening well, standing there talking with this fellow. I know that there was several cars passed me, and one car, as this thing settled down in front of me, was coming to meet me. And when this thing was directly in front of me, this car came to meet me. And his headlights were, it was in a kind of a curve. We, this guy came to meet me, would be making a left-hand curve, and his lights would be shining off to the right. But I still think that he could have seen and probably did see whatever this object was. You describe the attire of this person uh, more as a uh, more as a suit, 
such as I'm wearing than, than a uniform. Yes. That we I, know as a uniform. I would say that it wasn't a uniform. It uh, it didn't have, you know, the, the cut of a uniform. It was more like you'd uh, wear a suit uh, to town. Or, was it a cloth like this? Well, it was a bright, shiny color cloth. It looked like a what my wife calls a hard fabric. It glistened when the lights would shine on it. Uh, a luminous type. Yes. So soon after the interview aired, a, mar- a man came through saying he saw the same man on Route 77 trying to flag him down, um, but he did not stop because he was afraid, which, you know, feels a lot more normal to me. Uh, others claimed to see lights and fluttering vehicles at the same instant he said that the encounter happened. There were also witnesses that reported seeing Woodrow stopped on on the highway talking to a man, and some even claimed to have seen the flying craft in the road. Which was interesting because if you... Uh if you paid attention whenever we played the the clips, um, he said that he knows cars passed him while he was having this conversation. Right, yeah. He knows it happened. Um, so over the next month, Woodrow claimed to be visited by cold many times. He even said he took him on to the ship and back to his home planet. His wife and children also claimed they saw Ingrid cold or Ingrid cold. Sorry, I wrote it differently in different places in many occasions and others and other strange beings. So Ingrid cold just became like a household name to them. The kids knew when he came to visit, they knew who he was. Um, Woodrow claimed to also get mental messages from cold when he was away and that they would leave him with a piercing migraine. One time Woodrow actually went missing for six months saying he stating he was with cold the whole time and his family believed that to be true. Uh, Woodrow would also believe some strange phone calls um, at his house, some threatening him to stop talking about his experience. Um, Others were just like strange, weird beeping sounds and things like that. Uh, The family eventually changed their number and got an unlisted one to make these stop. But somehow the calls kept coming. Uh, Many locals would surround his house, hoping to get a glimpse of cold. Two men actually one night showed up with um, guns, hoping they would see him. But instead they actually saw uh, a like, Black car show up with two men coming out, both in black suits, looking for them, which obviously many are now saying was the men in black. Uh, Woodrow eventually um, thought that he might be losing his mind. So he decided to go to a mental facility to get help. Um, He left quickly with a clean bill of health with no evidence of chemical imbalance or disruption. Uh, Also, that um, that doctor that had told him he could leave, that he was fine, uh, quickly after got a um, telepathic message from a man named Indrid Cold and believed he was trying to speak to him. Uh, So in 1971, a a book called Visitors from Lanulos was released after Woodrow sent his stories to the author. In the book, there was a foreword written by John Peel. Keel. What? Keel. Why did I think his name was John Peel? I'm writing this all down wrong. But John Keel... And it said, quote, there are many who will scoff at this book and reject it entirely. Woodrow Durenberger will be called a liar, a psychopath, and many other unpleasant things. He has already suffered considerable ridicule and condemnation, even from those who believe in flying saucers, but do not wish to believe that someone is actually riding around in them. I cannot endorse his story, but I do feel I know the man well enough to give him a character reference. The important thing is that he seems to be telling the truth as he knows it. He sincerely believes that these things happen to him, and he is willing to expose himself to ridicule and condemnation in order to make himself heard. End quote. Um, oh, no, sorry. Not in quote. In quote of that part. Requote. I have talked to contactee claimants who are doctors, lawyers, newspapermen, police officers, and pilots. Woody has a lot of 
Elle has a lot of company, sane, reputable people. Perhaps we are the ones who have been insane for ignoring them for so long. Strange, unbelievable things are now happening to people all over the world. By listening to the handful of courageous ones like Woodrow Durnberger, we may at last gain some real insight into what is really behind the UFO phenomenon. I'm not asking you to believe any of it, but I'm asking you to listen to what he has to say. Incredible though it may seem, it is very possible that these these very same things could happen to you tomorrow, end quote. Um, and then in 1975, John Keel published his book called Mothman Prophecies, documenting his time in West Virginia investigating UFOs in the Mothman. And in his book, he tells Woodrow stories about Indrid Cold. Um, Woodrow lived a terrible life after that. There was people constantly harassing him. He never got to live, be normal again. There were constantly people trying to get him to talk about it, um, coming to his home, calling him, all those kind of things. Uh, so he eventually ended up moving away to try to get away from it. But he did end up moving back to his home when he was in his old age and passed away in 1990 at 74. Um, but until his the like up until the time he died, he never did deny what happened to him. But he did stop talking about it. Yep. So <clears throat> something to bear in mind here with injured cold as well. And the reason why I think it's been tied to Mothman so much is injured cold is like a. Uh, a figure of like. You'll just turn up in the weirdest places at yeah, times. Right. So like things, things will happen. And the next thing you know, somebody's getting reached out to by injured cold. So, um, injured cold probably deserves his own episode at some point. Uh, we'll maybe see if we can gather more about like some of the subsequent things with him. But, uh, but yeah. And another reason why it's been tied to Mothman is the sense of, and the same with men in black and the whole UFO thing would be the potential. At least I've seen this where, uh, let's say the Mothman is around and doing his thing, which some people say is prophesying and, and stuff like that. Um, aliens may be interested in that, and the Men in Black would also be interested in that. That's why this has been tied yeah, together. Yeah, right. So anyway, then you get um, the two sightings just prior to the main sighting. You have Kenneth Dun Duncan on November 12th, three days before the Scarsbury um, sighting. Uh, he was digging a grave for his father-in-law, Homer Smith, in a cemetery near... Uh, Clendon in West Virginia again. Um, and he claimed to see a man-like figure fly out uh, from some nearby trees and glide low over their heads. Four men were helping him, but these other men did not see the creature before it flew away. Um, but Kenneth said that the uh, brown creature lifted off beyond the trees and it was no bird. It was a humanoid. Quote, it was gliding through the trees and it was in sight for about a minute, says Kenneth. Um, he was baffled. He didn't know of any kind of bird, but uh, he he didn't say it looked like any kind of bird. He said it looks like a man with wings. Um, and it's said to be one of the first sightings of Mothman um, as well, because then you have Merle Partridge, who has a Mothman sighting. Uh, Merle Partridge is said to have seen this uh, in Salem, West Virginia, which is about 90 or 100 miles northward of uh, Point Pleasant. And there are conflicting reports on the date. So it's either November 13th or November 14th. But either way, it's like a day or two prior to uh, November 15th. Some reports also say November 15th, which is the same day that the Scarberry and, and Millet sightings were uh, uh, happened. But uh, contractor Merle Partridge or Newell Partridge, as he's sometimes called as an alias in books and newspapers, was watching television in his home one evening when he had an experience with a strange set of glowing red eyes um, or lights in his field. It was about 1030 at night and suddenly the TV blanked out. A real fine uh, herringbone pattern appeared on the television. And at the same time, the set started a loud, high-pitched whining noise. It sounded like a generator winding up. The dog was sitting on the end of the porch, howling down towards the hay barn. 
The dog's behavior that night was described as strange. He was acting up as if he saw something. Partridge grabbed his eight millimeter shotgun and walked out onto the porch. He saw uh, moving circular red lights in the distance and his dog bandit ran off towards the fields and disappeared. Never to be seen again. Poor bandit. Mm. The next day when Merle went walking out to the barn to look for his dog, he found only paw prints here and there. I could see Ban- quote here and there. I could see. Bandit's paw prints. Uh, These were rather easy to find for he was a heavy dog and the area was muddy. At the approximate position of where the red lights had been, he found dog tracks going around in a circle, but not leading off anywhere. There were no other tracks of any kind. In other words, he thinks his dog was taken, Mm, right? Poor puppy. He searched for his trusted companion in the weeks following the sighting, but never found his dog. There has been no explanation to this day for what exactly happened to the dog after he dashed out into the field. Weeks after the incident, Partridge told friends and family that he would not be surprised if he were to sometime, if he were to... Uh, sometime find the dead body of bandit nearby. Two couples, uh, then famously saw the red eyes. This is a Scarberry, um, incident near the TNT area. Um, but something that is interesting is both the Scarberry and Millette, uh, couples that were part of this very famous incident the next day said that they saw a dead dog by the side of the road that was gone less than an hour later. Mm-hmm. So they think this may have been bandit. Yeah. Uh, Marl Partridge reported his sighting to Sheriff George Johnson and said that when he aimed a flashlight in the nearby field, um, the eyes would light up like bicycle reflectors. Sound familiar? Yep. Um, Merle believed that the buzzing noises from the television set that night and the disappearance of his German Shepherd were related to the Mothman, which people had begun uh, to report seeing in interviews. Uh, he said that he believed the dog the Scarberry and Millette couple saw was indeed his bandit because he was very well trained and would never and would have returned back to him otherwise. Um, so then you have the one that we've been building up to. The most right. famous one. It has the picture of the 1957 Chevy Bel Air everywhere you go. Like every time someone talks about the Mothman, this is what they talk about. This is a Scarberry and Millette um, Mothman sighting. So um, it occurred on November 15th in Point Pleasant. Uh, the story was the first to make the news in the area and generate the public attention, which then sprouted up these other stories um, that happened, you know, all around. Um and every other story that happened prior to this incident were reported afterwards. Right. Um, it was this sighting that first got John Keel interested in the creature. Um, but anyway, so here's how it goes. On November 15th, 1966, two young couples were joyriding around in a black 1957 Chevy Bel Air to a remote hangout spot north of Point Pleasant, known as the TNT area. Um, one of the couples was Linda Scarberry and Roger Scarberry, and the other one was Steve Millette and Mary Millette. Um, two married couples. So they were actually going out to the TNT area to show off this car. That was apparently like what they, you know, did at the time. Yeah. And Roger was known to, you know, be very proud of his car. When they got there um, next to the abandoned North Power Plant, they suddenly saw two large red eyes which reflected the light from the car's headlights. Steve noticed it first and pointed it out to the group. That's when they are said to have noticed that the glowing red eyes uh, belonged to a strange creature. They claimed to have seen a gray man-like figure with wings go around the corner of the old power plant. They said that the creature didn't run but wobbled like it couldn't keep its balance. Linda described the creature as having circular fiery red eyes and a body like a man but with wings. They said the creature was about six or seven feet tall with wings folded against its back. Half man, half monster. She said, quote, you could see muscles in its legs. The 
Couples couldn't believe what they had seen. They quickly drove off Route 62 and Linda yelled for Roger to hurry. The couples then saw the creature on a hill by a large billboard as they went around a curve. It spread its wings and went straight up into the air, which is a common motif with with Mothman. Just like he has wings, but almost as if he's rocket propelled. Yeah, uh uh-huh. They were all terrified and kept yelling for the driver to go faster. The Mothman began gliding back and forth over the back end of their car. And quote, we didn't know what it was. I don't think we've ever been so scared, said Linda. As they went along a straight stretch of road, they were going over 100 miles per hour, which I've done that in old cars and it's terrifying. (laughs) Um, But uh, the creature was still able to follow them. They saw it in the back window and they saw the shadow go across the car as it flew. They couldn't get away from it. They also could hear the wings hitting the top of the car as they drove. It's even said to have left a scratch marks on Roger's 57 Chevy Bel Air. It squeaked like a big mouse. Um... Quote, it squeaked like a big mouse, said uh, Mary Millette, and they were only able to get away from the Mothman when they reached the edge of Point Pleasant. The creature disappeared, veering off the field as they went into town. Um, The couples continued going into town and they stopped at the local Dairyland as they tried to figure out what to do next. Uh, Linda suggested they go to the police, but Steve and Roger thought they'd just laugh at them and wanted to go back to make sure the thing was still there first. The group ended up being too afraid to do that, so they turned around. As they were turning around, they saw a large dead dog lying along the road, uh, which was gone when they went by again later. So again, they think that was Bandit. Right. According to the couples, the winged creature jumped out as they passed where the dead dog was. Uh, It went over the top of the car and went through the field on the other side. They drove back into town and parked at Tiny's Diner and decided to contact the police. Tiny's Diner, by the way, is is mentioned in quite a few sightings um, after this as well. And they told uh, police that they saw a large winged creature whose eyes glowed red when they when car headlights picked it up. They described it as a flying man with 10 foot wings following their car. Halstead didn't believe them at first, but knew they weren't troublemakers and saw that they were genuinely terrified. So he actually went out to investigate the story. The couples drove back out to the TNT area with the deputy. Uh, Millard shined a spotlight around the area, including the tree lines. Deputy Halstead is said to have heard strange static disturbances coming from his radio that he couldn't explain, but he found no clear sign of the creature itself. The witnesses were sitting in their car and said that they saw shadows circling nearby and clouds of dust kicked up from an adjacent coal yard. The Millettes were too scared to go back to their homes and they stayed at the Scarberry's trailer, uh, turned all the lights on and stayed awake all night from fear. The following day, Sheriff George Johnson, the same person who uh, uh, Partridge had reported the bandit Mm -hmm. thing to, um, held a press conference to discuss the sightings. The local press began printing the story and named the creature Mothman based on the comic book character Batman, um, who had just gotten a television series at the time. So he was, you know, famous. Yeah. Steve Millette told the local newspaper, we understand people are laughing at us, but we wouldn't make up all of this and make us look like fools. At the same time, the couples went back to the TNT area during daylight and found odd looking tracks resembling, quote, two horseshoes put together, but smooth. Uh, Steve saw something fly up inside a boiler when a door was kicked open and no one stayed around long enough to see what it was. After this original sighting, more and more people began reporting seeing similar things, such as Marcella Bar- uh, Bennett's sighting, which happened a day later. Um, and hundreds, of, hundreds of cars full of eager people swarmed out to the TNT area at night in hopes to see the Mothman. Of course they did. Of course. So anyway, the story was immediately picked up by the newspapers and spread rather quickly. There were at least 18 articles I read um, the next day about this. Wow. Yeah, so the... Uh, uh, 
it went out to the Associated Press, was even recorded uh, across, and then was even featured in the Pacific Stars and Stripes newspaper, which went out to American troops in Vietnam. Um, these reports were not part of public record uh, that that we have until they were used in the production of Jeff, Jeff Walmsley's book, uh, quote, The Mothman Facts Behind the Legend. But we do have um, all of their, uh, what's it called, testimonies from that night, the police reports mm-hmm. right here. So. Um, this is Linda's report. Like, this is what police took down as her statement. We were riding through the TNT area on a side road by the old powerhouse building around 12 on Tuesday night, November 15th, 1966, when we came over this small rise on the road, in the road. All at once, Steve yelled for us to look at that thing in the road. I looked up and saw it go around the corner at the old powerhouse. It didn't run, but wobbled like it couldn't keep its balance. Its wings were spread just a little. We sat there a few seconds, then Roger took off. I kept yelling for him to hurry. We didn't even stop for the curves. We got on, we got out on, uh, Route 62 and we, and was coming down the road and that thing was sitting on the second hill when you come up, come into the first bad curves. As soon as our lights hit it, it was gone. It spread its wings a little and went straight up into the air. When we got to the armory, it was flying over our car. We were going between 100 and 105 miles per hour down that straight stretch and that thing was just gliding back and forth over the back end of the car. As we got there in the front of the in the front of the lights by the resort, it dived at our car and went away. I could hear the wings flapping as if to get more speed as it went up. We were all terrified and kept yelling for Roger to go faster. As we came into the straight stretch by CC Lewis's farm, the thing was over our car again. Then it disappeared as we came into the lights by CC Lewis's gates. We went on downtown and stopped at Dairyland and tried to decide what to do. We just sat there and looked at each other. I wanted to go to the police, police, but Steve and Roger kept saying they just laugh at us. We talked about it a while, and Roger and Steve went to wanted to go back up the road. Mary and I kept trying to talk them out of it, and finally, when we got to C.C. Lewis's gates, they decided they didn't want to go back up, so we turned around. As we were turning, we saw a big dead dog laying along the road. When we were almost turned around, this thing jumped and leaped over our car and went through the field on the other side of the road. We decided to go to the police then and went down and around Tiny's drive-in looking for them. Gary was outside the drive-in getting ready to take a couple boys home so we could. So we told him about seeing this thing and asked him to call the police. After the police came, we went back up the road in our car with Gary and the police about a half mile behind us. I saw it then in a pasture field with its wings out a little walking towards the car. Then it went up in the air and came at the car as Gary's car lights came over the rise in the road and the lights shined on it. It disappeared. We went up and down the road looking for it, but it didn't see, but didn't see it anymore. We went back down to the drive-in and got into Gary's car and went back up. We finally found Millard Halstead and got hit with him and went to the powerhouse building. We sat there with our lights on for about 15 or 20 minutes when I heard that squeaking sound like a mouse, only stronger. A shadow went across the hill, uh, went across the building over on the hill across from us. Mary and I saw the red eyes then and told Millard. He shined the lights right on them without being told where they were. We saw dust coming up from the ground or somewhere as Miller moved the spotlight around. We finally left and came to the trailer. The mallets were afraid to go to their apartment, so we decided to stay together, but we didn't go to bed. We just turned on the lights and stayed up. Wednesday, we went up again to the building and found these off tracks around the building. Steve was around the boilers by himself and suddenly 
Suddenly, he came running out white as a sheet, yelling for someone. He said he saw it in the boilers. That night, it was seen at Thomas's. So we went up there, and Mary and I stayed in the house while Stephen Roger and a few other bystanders went looking for it. On the way up, I saw it from the highway above the trees gliding back and forth. They searched the area around Thomas's house but didn't find anything. We started home around 1230, and I saw it on one of the maintenance buildings. Mary and I started crying and Roger took off. I kept thinking about that thing following us, but it didn't. We went to my mother's and I went all to pieces. Roger and my dad took me down to the hospital. I finally got home and we all stayed together that night again, but didn't go to bed till three or four o'clock. We were still afraid to go to sleep. The next day, Thursday, we went up, we went back up with reporters and we all heard a clanging noise from inside the building. Roger and Steve and the reporters went back in and found the boiler door open that Steve had shut when he left a few minutes before that. That night, we went back up, and Mary Hyrie and I saw the eyes inside the fenced-off place beside the powerhouse building. On the way home, I saw its eyes back in some trees from the road as as the car went past and looked back and could see its form. That is the last time I have seen it. To me, it just it just looks like a man with wings. Um, It has a body shaped form with wings on its back that come around it. It has muscular legs like a man and fiery red eyes that glow when the lights hit it. There was no glowing about it until the lights hit it. I couldn't see its head or arms. I don't know if the eyes are even in a head. When we came back, when we came down the straight stretch by the armory, it didn't even seem like it had any trouble keeping up, up with us. It must have had very powerful wings. At no time did this thing fly at us from the front or the, of the car. It stayed over the back end of the car while it was chasing us. It seemed to be afraid of lights. But I read in the paper today that it has been seen in the daytime in town. That I don't understand. The prints we found at C.C. Lewis's gate and at both powerhouses and at Thomas's. They looked like two horseshoes put together, but they're smooth. I know people are laughing at us, but it's no laughing matter. We'll never forget this thing. It has affected our lives in many ways. I am keeping going on nerve and sleeping pills. When it gets dark, I feel the fear creeping over me. When I go any place, I automatically look up and out the windows. I'm afraid to sleep at night, so I lay awake, sometimes crying with fear. When I do sleep or go to bed, the lights burn all night. Even in the daylight, I'm afraid to be by myself. I walk around in my own house expecting to see that thing. I close my eyes day or night, and I can see those red fiery eyes staring at me. Even little noises scare me to death. I can't stand in a crowd and hear people talking about us and laughing. People have said we were probably liquored up, but we were not. They got up there expecting to see it, but then they say they don't believe us. We have seen it, so we don't know what what to look for, and we are constantly looking, not because we want to see it, but because we're afraid we'll see it again. Out of all the phone calls we've gotten, not one um, minister has called to help us or try to explain what it is. We all agree we'd like to talk to a minister about it, but no one takes us that serious. One minister even laughed and said they'd finally run the devil out of their church, and that's what we saw. We'd been harassed and laughed at and called crazy. We just can't go up there and hand it to people on a silver platter like they seem to want us to do. We are never really going to get over our fear until we find out for sure what this thing is. I know I'll never forget it. I don't think anyone who can who has seen it. Okay, and then <clears throat> we also have um, stories from like the, the other reports from Mary and um, Roger as well. And you can you guys can go look it up whenever like we'll link to it. Um, or if this does break in the second episode, maybe we'll read it then. Um, but yeah, so 
pretty much a terrifying encounter, right? I mean, yeah, she, she seems she terrified. terrified. So, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. So some of the fear actually came from poltergeist activity that happened in her home after this. So the Scarberry couple were living in their own rented trailer near Tiny's Diner at the time of the uh, Mothman encounter that we just read about. And they are said to have replete, repeatedly heard the sound of a sped up phonograph record and other peculiar activity. Um, that are similar to reports of poltergeist. Linda and Roger later relocated when they moved in with uh, Linda's parents, the McDaniels, like she talked about. Um, but the strange activity seemed to follow them. Other Mothman witnesses also claimed similar things to be going on in their homes through 1966 and 1967, such as Connie Carpenter, who would hear loud beeping sounds outside of her bedroom window. This was most likely not printed in the newspaper at the time, but these personal stories were touched upon in the works of John Keel. Um, and in the Mothman prophecies, Kiel wrote, quote, Roger and Linda Scarberry were living in the house trailer at the time of the Mothman sighting. In the week that followed, they were suddenly plagued by strange sounds around the trailer at night. Beeps and loud garbled noises like a speeded up uh, phonograph record. They could not locate the source of the sounds outside or inside the trailer. The couple later settled in the basement apartment in the home of Linda's parents. <clears throat> and John uh, Kiel discussed uh, the family trouble in his book, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, quote, the McDaniel family had been living in the Twilight Zone ever since their daughter and others had first glimpsed Mothman. Odd lights appeared in the houses, uh, objects moved by themselves, and the heavy door odor of cigar smoke was frequently noted, even though nobody in the family smoked. Adding to the strangeness, the couple is also said to have had encountered the Mothman on their roof. Uh, one night about midnight, Linda, her aunt and a five month old infant daughter, Danny, were all sleeping in her bedroom and Linda awoke and distinctly saw the shadowy form of a man in the room. The kitchen light had been left on and dimly flowed into the room enough to see. Linda said that the man wore a black and white checkered shirt with black pants. He had charcoal crew cut hair and dark unblinking eyes. He just stood there staring at her. This kind of sounds like injured cold, right? Yeah. Um, Linda said she was numb and couldn't move. He then took a cigarette out of his shirt pocket and lit it. And there was a gold crucifix, which Linda had hanging above Danny's bed. When the strange man lit the cigarette, the crucifix reflected the light and caught his eye. He turned to look at it as, as did Linda. When he turned back, he was gone. Or when she turned back, he was gone. Linda claimed that her aunt later woke up and said that she had dreamed of the exact same events in the, in the room. Hmm. Yep. The house was searched. The, all the doors were still locked and there was no sign of any intruder. Wow. Yeah. So that is the beginning of the Mothman story. So we hate to break it, but we're going to be at like an hour and a half to an hour and 40 already. And we just feel like if we kept going, we would cut short everything else. So what we'll do next week is we'll do a short recap by uh, reading one of the other statements. Um, and then we'll continue on because we have a full 13 months worth of sightings, the silver bridge collapse, and then also uh, subsequent sightings uh, in different regions of the world. And then a wrap up of what else it is. So that's, what's going to make up episode two. Um, we hope you enjoyed episode one. Um, again, it's a very detailed tale, probably the most detailed of any other than maybe aliens. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. more detailed than Bigfoot even, I think. So, uh, yeah, so very, very detailed story, which is odd because Mothman, I always didn't put on that level of aliens or Bigfoot. Yeah, it's just the amount of stories is insane. It's shocking. It yeah. is legitimately shocking. So, anyway, hope you're enjoying this. Uh, we will be back next week with part two, and we hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye.